Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Sarah Eyerly, author of Moravian Soundscapes. Sarah Justina Eyerly is the author of the book Moravian Soundscapes, a sonic history of the Moravian missions in early Pennsylvania. And they say in the book that you wanted to create a new type of history. What were you aiming for? I was aiming to understand Pennsylvania's history from the perspective of sound, a sonic history. So um, one of the things about um, understanding the past is that often sensory information is missing from archival records. And that means that sometimes as historians, we, we miss the human element, or in other words, how people experienced the world in the past, which often comes to us through our five senses. And as a music historian, sound and cultures of hearing and listening are particularly interesting to me. And so I wanted to see um, what we would learn about Pennsylvania history if we delved into the sensory of experience of sound during the 18th century. What would we learn about the lives of European and Native American Christians and Moravian mission communities, for instance, what they cared about, how they heard and listened to the world around them. And I didn't want to do that just through the vehicle of writing because writing can only express sound in a very rudimentary way. Um, so the book also has a companion website where um, I and also um, some students who were working with me here at Florida State University attempted to actually use sound as a narrative um, form to tell the story of these mission communities through sound so that people could go to the website and actually listen to some of the things that Moravian Christians might have heard and experienced. How did you reconstruct the sounds uh, and the, of the environment and the communities uh, before uh, recording was available? Yeah, that, that's a really great point because, of course, we don't have sound recordings from the 18th century. So I used many of the same techniques that music historians and historical performers use to recreate past musical traditions. So one of the ways um, that we uh, try to understand how music was performed in the past is by studying archival records. Sometimes people write about musical um, concerts that they attended or what they felt about the music that they heard or listened to, or people might write pedagogy treatises on how to teach different musics or how they should be sung or played. So archival records, um, particularly the vast archival collections um, owned by the Moravian Church, uh, the Northern Province archives for this hemisphere are actually located in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And there are thousands and thousands of manuscripts, over 5,000, for instance, just related to the history of Indian missions in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut that are housed there in Bethlehem at the archives of the Moravian Church. So archival records were really important uh, to this process. But also, um, my uh, collaborator, Mark Shuketti, he's a, a geographer at Jacksonville State University at the time 
we did this research. He was a doctoral student in geography at Florida State. We did over two years of geospatial field work in the areas around Bethlehem and communities in Eastern Pennsylvania, like Lehighton, where there was a Moravian mission community in the mid 18th century, just collecting all of the GPS points and geospatial information on those communities and where buildings and places existed in the 18th century. We also considered what types of tools and, you know, home goods and other elements of material culture the Moravians would have owned at the time and what types of sounds those made. Um, those are almost like musical instruments. If we have an iron bell in the present, for instance, that comes from the Moravian community in Bethlehem, its ringing tone is almost the same as it would have been in the 18th century. And we can actually use that bell and its sounds today and record those and get a sense of what people heard in the 18th century. Now you also talk about the importance of learning in place as a part of the process. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so I think this is, is such an, an important um, idea, the idea of reading the land as an archive. So treating the land itself as an archive. Um, it is really not until you stand in some of these places that you realize how much information is there. For instance, on Main Street in Bethlehem, there's a little walking path that goes down um, near where the uh, Bethlehem Hotel is located, down toward the Monocacy Creek. And that walking path is called, um, if you look at contemporary maps, the Ohio Road. And there are layers of history just in that path. It goes right past where the Moravian ha Moravians had a spring house. And that spring, of course, was there um, for thousands of years before the Moravians came uh, to that site. There was actually a Lenape, uh, a Delaware community located there before the Moravians purchased the land in the 1740s. And that pathway probably was uh, part of the Minisink path, which was a Native American pathway that had probably existed in that area again for thousands of years before the Moravians. So street names um, are an important evidence, I guess, for how people named and considered places in the past. Um, also, if you go down on that pathway toward the Monocacy Creek, you'll see a little indentation in the ground, sort of, and it's the remnants of the mill trace. So the mill itself is not there anymore, um, but the mill trace is still visible if you know where to look along the creek. So those types of things are incredibly important and they're just things you will not find unless you go and really uh, comprehend these places in person. What was it that intrigued you about the Moravians? Well, I first began to learn about the Moravians as a college student at Penn State University. Um, my one of my father's cousins told us that they had found a published article, a translation of a journal by one of our ancestors, Johann Jakob Eierly Sr. Um, it had been translated by a Pennsylvania historian, Paul Wallace, who did an incredible amount of research in uncovering Pennsylvania's uh, Native American history in the mid 20th century. And he had actually translated this journal by our ancestor. At the time, my father and I did not know anything about the fact that our family had been members of the Moravian Church in the 18th century. And I put that into the book, this idea of sort of gradually discovering my family's 
own story in relationship to Pennsylvania's past that you know only emerged gradually as I began to really dig into the Moravian archival records and try to understand this story as a historian in the present. So I guess my interest in the Moravians really stemmed from the fact that I discovered my own family had a connection to these communities. Now, singing was a, a very big part of the Moravian culture. Oh, why, why was that such an important part of their faith? So the Moravians belonged to a long lineage of um, Christian denominations who believed in the sort of vibrational power of music to kind of transcend the human and the spiritual realms. Um, the Lutheran Church, of course, has a long tradition of music and singing as an important part of their religious uh, faith and worship practices, and the Moravians kind of fit into that same lineage. Um, there were many uh, members of the Lutheran Church and Pietist communities in Germany, as well as the Unitas Fratrum, um, or Reformed communities in Bohemia and Moravia, who kind of joined together in the early 18th century in, uh, in Germany to form this new church community, and one of the central principles that they agreed upon was the power of song and specifically a congregational song that where everyone is singing together and uh, the vibrations of the singing can have sort of incredibly powerful impact upon this group of people so one of the um, ways that my um, graduate students and I began to understand how the Moravians regarded singing was to actually go into some of the existing worship spaces that are still there in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania today. For instance, the Gemeinsaal in the Gemeinhaus, um, which is on Church Street in Bethlehem. The Gemeinsaal is up on the second floor of the building, and it, it has a wooden um, floor, and we knew from archival records that Moravians would have um, sometimes actually laid on the floor to sing together because wood um, is such a great transmitter of uh, sonic vibrations. And so we actually went into the room and we decided to give it a try. And I wrote about this in the book that it was an incredible experience. Um, the vibrations really it was almost like singing into a wonderful microphone. The building itself was like a resonator, almost like a cello, um, where the, the strings produce the vibration, but it's the wooden body of the cello that amplifies and makes those sounds really beautiful and audible. And so the building itself was almost like a resonator for the human voice. And we be, really began to understand, um, you know, how the Moravians experienced and heard um, these hymns and other uh, forms of music that were so central to their faith. Now, did they construct their buildings with that intent? That was uh, the purpose of doing so? No, I don't think there's any evidence that they um, specifically had an acoustic design for the building. I think they constructed buildings in Bethlehem as they did in other Moravian communities around the world of available natural materials um, from on site. So. I don't think that they had a specific acoustic design, but I think they were well aware of the acoustic properties of a building where the worship hall is actually suspended up on a second floor. And, and in other words, there's space below it and there's space above it. And what that does when you sing in such a space. So I think they were aware of that and took advantage of those existing properties of that type of building. Can you talk a little bit about Count Nicholas Zinzendorf and what his role was? 
Yeah, so Count Zinzendorf is really charismatic um, figure, and I think you can say that uh, nothing about how the Moravians practiced their music or heard their world or listened to it um, would have been the same without Count Zinzendorf and his theories about song and also about um, Christian faith. So as a young child, we know from archival records, um, he spent a lot of time living with his grandmother, um, Katharina von Gersdorf, and she was a pietist, and many of the well-known um, pietist figures in Germany came to stay with her. So Zinzendorf had a sort of great access to some of the best theological minds of his time, even as a child. And we know from stories about his early life that he was a very um, religiously inclined and spiritual child. So he used to play alone in his room, for instance. Um, he would later write that, he imagined that Jesus was there with him in the room and he would come up with various ways that he could actually communicate with Jesus as almost an imaginary playmate. And one of those ways was to write some notes and keep them in his pocket, maybe different Bible verses or queries that he could ask like yes or no. And then he would draw those papers from his pocket at random to understand what messages Jesus had for him at that particular time and place. And that actually led him to sort of develop this theory that if you could improvise hymns, it would be much better than singing something that another person had pre-composed or put together, because that would allow God a chance to intervene in that moment and to almost have a voice in your life and in community life and, and to speak to that particular time and place, a message that was um, divine in nature. Now, you also mentioned in the book that he was in influenced by Jacob Bohm, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who, who was he and what, what was that influence? Yeah, Jacob Bohm was an important um, mystical uh, figure. Um, he was interested in alchemy, spiritual alchemy, vibrational alchemy, um, as were many um, People um, in Europe at the time, going back to the court of Rudolf II um, during the Renaissance time period, the court of Rudolf II at Prague and uh, John Dee and Johannes Kepler who were employed there. Uh, so there was a lineage of sort of um, mystical tradition that fed into the development of the Moravian church. And I believe from some research I have done in German archives in the original community of Herrnhut that Zinzendorf owned alchemical treatises and other books by um, mystics like Jakob Böhme, and that some of that information sort of fed into his idea about how song and sonic vibrations would actually operate in the Christian community. Um, so if you think um, there's a similarity between the practice of communion and what the Moravians were trying to do with song, so communion is, is a type of spiritual cleansing where you are receiving um, some absolution or, you know, ta taking in a, something to your body that will help you, you know, to become uh, more spiritually pure. And I think that Sinzendorf felt that song could do the same thing. And especially if people could sing together in groups and not just by themselves, it was almost like creating a process of, um, vibrational alchemy is what I call it in the book, or vibrational cleansing. Now, Zinzendorf also, when he was traveling in Pennsylvania, he would improvise hymns on, on his journey. Uh, well, how did he arrive at doing that? Why was that important to him? 
I think Zinzendorf was a, was a person of his time. He was infinitely curious about the world around him. And I think that he, I can imagine him really going, um, you know, through Eastern Pennsylvania in the mid 18th century. He was one of the, probably the very first um, Europeans to cross, um, for instance, over the Kittatinny Mountains and to go northward, um, you know, from the area around the Lehigh River. Uh, I think he was fascinated by the people and places that he saw. And going back to his childhood where he would just um, choose, I guess, to vent his feelings or, you know, to express himself in song. I think that was a very natural part of his journey through early Pennsylvania, that he would choose to record the people and places that he encountered in song. And it's fascinating to see how quickly those songs were transmitted across the Atlantic. The Moravians, even in the early days of the settlement at Bethlehem and Nazareth, had a sophisticated network of ships that transported people and goods and musical instruments and musical manuscripts and theological treatises and church letters and communiques pretty quickly for that era uh, across the Atlantic so that communities in um, continental Europe and also um, in London could actually understand what was happening in Pennsylvania at that time. Now, these songs that he was writing, uh, from a historian's point of view, are, are they important documentary uh, resources for you? Do they did show you what people what people's lives were like? Absolutely. Um, so just like the land can be a record or people's letters about what they experienced can be a record that we can use to understand the past, songs are an incredibly powerful record. Um, we often choose to put in song things that we care about or things that mean something you know very deep to us. And so um, in Sinzendorf's hymns, or what I call his Pennsylvania hymns, we find records of, of people, names of places, descriptions of the natural environment um, that really aren't preserved in any other form. And I will say, too, that part of the book is um, discussing native language hymns. Uh, the Mohican language, for instance, is not a spoken language anymore. And one of the only archival sources for that language comes from Moravian hymn manuscripts in the 18th century. And uh, if readers go to the book's website um, in the area for chapter three, they can actually listen to some of those hymns being sung. And it's been a fascinating process to reconstruct the language and to understand its pronunciation and what kinds of worldviews um, we can glean from those records as well. These are some of the very first known Mohican authored texts. These were not just translations by German missionaries. Um, Mohican Christians actually created some of these texts and assisted in writing them down. What was the relationship between the European Moravians in Pennsylvania and the native Moravians? This is true of, of understanding um, any time and place in the past, that when we look at whatever evidence survives to us in the present for understanding the past, we look with our own lens. And I think that um, this particular mid 18th century time in Pennsylvania, um, you know, certainly scholars have written a lot about this. Um, Catherine Fall, for instance, writing in Moravian studies about the Susquehanna River Valley, Daniel Richter, um, writing about um, Pennsylvania Native American history have discussed that this was a, a time when a, 
there were many different communities from all over the world living in Eastern Pennsylvania. And the ideas about race and ethnicity and religious affiliation were much different um, than they are in modern Pennsylvania. This seemed to be a time in um, early American history when people found that it was desirable or possible to create these multi-ethnic communities such as the uh, Moravians envisioned their missions could be. And native Christians sometimes chose to affiliate um, with those mission communities. There probably are about 450 Delaware, um, Wampano, and Mohican Christians affiliated with the Moravians in the mid 18th century, maybe more, but those, that's about the number that is represented in um, baptismal records um, from that time period. And I think that people believed far more in their shared faith and their spirituality than um, they were concerned about racial or ethnic backgrounds or geographical places where people had come from. What, what was the Native uh, American uh, culture surrounding singing like? Yeah, so this is what I think um, is very interesting about um, you know, correspondences between practices of singing in the Moravian church, so things that German um, immigrants brought with them to Pennsylvania, and pre-existing practices of singing in Native American communities, for instance, um, Mohican and um, Lenape, Delaware communities. There was a lot of similarities about the idea of sacred song and how sacred songs worked. So the idea of improvisation, for instance, was an immediate link between these two pre-existing spiritual practices about singing. So in Northeastern Woodlands communities, typically people understood sacred songs to be something that was given to them by a divine presence, by a spirit. It might be something that you would seek um, individually in the woods by listening and understanding the environment around you. And if you were uh, favored by a spirit, you would receive the gift of a sacred song. And it was certainly understood that sacred songs were not created by people. Um, and in fact, if you tried to make one up, um, you could actually you know, risk censure by your community for trying to basically manufacture that divine spiritual connection through song. And the same was true for the Moravians, this idea that songs are more powerful when they come from the divine and not from a human mind and that that has to be an authentic spiritual experience. You cannot manufacture that connection with the divine that will allow you to sort of receive this gift of a sacred song. So there were a lot of similarities um, in that idea and the a lot of other Christian missions that came to the Northeastern United States did not have that same idea about singing and sacred song. And so that connection that was kind of unique to the Moravian Church was missing. Now, your book also talks about uh, the natural world and the soundscapes. Uh, what would, the, if you were standing, say, on the banks of the Susquehanna River before the Europeans arrived, what types of things would you have heard? So, I think it's it's really fascinating to sort of imagine, um, you know, what that would have sounded like. I think that people were far more observant about their world through um, the ears than we tend to be today. If you just take a moment now to just be quiet, I mean, whatever space you are located, 
you'll probably begin to notice that anytime you attempt to engage in silence, there's actually quite a lot of sound around you. The sounds of planes or cars going by, or even your refrigerator uh, making a hum, uh, you know, in the uh, distance. And those sounds would not have been a part of the mid 18th century soundscape along the Susquehanna River. So it would have given you an opportunity to hear and listen to different types of sounds. I think you would have paid far more attention um, to uh, animals and their sounds and calls, to water, to wind, to trees and plants and vegetation as a way to sort of orient yourself to the world around you. I think uh, people in the 18th century just uh, paid far more attention to their soundscape than um, we tend to do today. Now, when the Europeans arrived and settled in, in parts of Pennsylvania, uh, how did their concepts of time and space, how were they uh, manifested in sound? Yeah, so I think that um, the Moravians had this interesting idea that sound kind of bridged different spiritual worlds. So there was certainly the human world that we um, inhabited, but there was also this tie to a a universal um, world and a universal church and group of Christians in the past, the present, and the future. Um, so I think that they brought with them this kind of expansive idea of space, but at the same time encountering the actual natural environment in eastern Pennsylvania. And I try to give a sense of this in the book, um, what that environment would have looked like, what it would have been like to experience it because it is so different. Um, from the very cultivated places that often, um, you know, make up Eastern Pennsylvania as a landscape today, that um, the idea of this kind of endless forest, um, you know, much of Eastern Pennsylvania in the mid 18th century was covered with forest land, was kind of daunting to um, Europeans who came from a place uh, that was heavily deforested um, you know, parts of Central Europe and Britain, where many of these um, immigrants were coming from, just looked far different in the mid 18th century in terms of their landscape. And so one of the things I've found um, is pretty prevalent in writings of um, those immigrants about their experiences of the landscape is just um, feeling a sense of dread almost at, at the endlessness of the forest and the difficulty of the landscape. Now, when the Moravians established their community, it was a planned community. How did they plan it, and what, what were they intending to do? So the Moravians had a town planning structure um, that originated in Germany in the central church community in Harnhut. And so there were pretty predictable designs for how Moravian towns were laid out so that you could go from place to place. You could perhaps go to Harendijk in the Netherlands, um, you could go to Yorkshire in England, um, you could go to the Caribbean, you could come to Pennsylvania, and you would probably recognize the design of the buildings and the layout of the streets. And one of the things that I tried to explore in the book is how Moravian town planning practices helped to create a sense of who belonged in a community like this, which was a closed religious community. Um, you could not live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, for instance, in the mid 18th century, unless you were Moravian. Um, how these um, spatial planning practices helped people to understand who belonged there and who didn't and how that intersected 
with sounds and what you could hear and what you could not hear when standing at different parts of the town. So one of the things that my students and I discovered is that around the core of the communal buildings in Bethlehem, so everyone lived in these communal houses that were separated by gender and age, around that core soundscape, you probably could have heard very well, you know, hymns singing throughout the day, for instance, forming a kind of a sense of a religious soundscape that was all encompassing. But as you moved further away to the edges of the community, for instance, um, along uh, the uh, street in Bethlehem, I'm, I can't remember the name of that street, but it's still there, um, where the stranger's store was located. The stranger's store was a place that people could come on the sort of outskirts of the community to purchase things from the Moravians. But visitors really weren't allowed to sort of penetrate that inner core around um, the communal buildings unless they were supervised by Moravian elders. And so what you could hear at the stranger's store is very different than what you could hear around the single brothers and the single sisters houses. And I think considering again how people oriented themselves by sound to the world around them, that made a, a big difference for um, feeling a sense of belonging to the community or feeling a sense that you were a stranger there or, or someone who was outside of the community. And my students and I have, have worked to resound some of those soundscapes so that um, readers can get a sense of what people heard. How is singing a part of the structure of a Moravian day? Singing happened all day long. And all, this was almost a kind of monastic practice, a, a ritual cycle of music and prayer that started about four or five o'clock in the morning. Um, so a bell would be rung in the different choir houses and people would rise and get ready for the day. They would begin by singing. They would have um, you know, prayers together. They would eat breakfast. We know also from archival records that while people were eating, while they were talking, while they were going about their daily chores, they were singing. So there, there was certain time set aside for worship throughout the day, but worship also happened in the midst of just daily life. It was really a part of how you were supposed to approach the entirety of your life as a Moravian. Um, even uh, there are records that detail that Moravians would sing a song to each other when meeting each other um, on the street, for instance, instead of saying hello, uh, they would sing a hymn verse as a greeting. So it was really such an important part of how people interacted um, with each other throughout the day. They also mentioned that different occupations had their own songs and some like stable hands, reapers, spinners, tailors. Uh, was the, were the, were the words of the songs different for different occupations, melodies different? How, how were they distinct? Yeah, so the words were different. They were designed to tell you something theological about that occupation or about a particular category of people, for instance, single sisters or single brothers or married women or married men. Um, there were certain theological principles and Bible verses that were associated with different occupations and different stages in one's life or different uh, or um, gender. And um, those songs helped, again, to create a sense of sonic community so that you understood where you belonged within this communal structure and how that fit an important purpose within the life of a Christian community. The melodies and this is interesting, this is part of the feature of, of the improvisational aspect. Moravians used only about 
40 melodies that got recycled over and over again. There were more than 200 tunes in a typical Moravian chorale book or a songbook that might have been used by organists, but only around 40 of those were sung in regular rotation. And one of the reasons for this is that if you want to improvise something, it's really hard to improvise new text and new music. But if you don't have to improvise new music, you just have to improvise new text, you can make your job much easier. So if you only have 40 tunes and therefore 40 harmonic structures and melodies to learn, then you can easily adapt those tunes which you, you know, are so familiar to you from regular singing throughout the day to improvise new texts that will fit them. Now, improvisation was was a very important part of their musical culture, and, and they actually taught it. How did they teach it? Yeah, so um, Moravians had a very predictable uh, plan for how to teach people to improvise, because it's actually not that easy to improvise music. It isn't a question of just singing or playing whatever you feel like. Improvisation is actually a highly structured practice where you are often learning formulas, or in other words, um, melodies or bits of text that are repetitive. And then you are learning how to combine those formulas in new ways to create something that has never been sung or spoken before. So the Moravians had regular singing schools where they would teach people uh, these hymn tunes and also how to take parts of hymn tunes and combine them with parts of other hymn tunes. Uh, They also had poet schools so that people could learn how to spontaneously create new poetry. And this is very much part of 18th century um, European practice. People memorized long lists of rhymes that then they would have those in their memory and they could easily use them to create new poetic structures and texts. So this fit very much with its time, I guess, um, in European artistic history that you would want to do something like this and some of the techniques that were used. Now, the Moravian communities uh, featured people from who spoke multiple languages, and uh, that manifested itself in song as well, in, in what you call a polyglot harmony. How did that work? So this is very much a part of Moravian theological practice, and it is a specific mission philosophy. Um, the idea that the Holy Spirit manifests in the languages and cultures of people all around the world in ways that are specific to that group of people and that time and place. So the Moravians approached their mission work in this way. They, they saw themselves as um, you know, ambassadors to a particular community. They often would just simply go and live in a particular place. Um, the first Moravian missionary in North America, Christian Heinrich Rauch, first came to New York City, um, where he met two Mohican men and eventually was able to persuade them to be allowed to come back um, to their hometown. And he set um, up there basically providing basic medical care and sort of practicing his faith in public view. And eventually people came to ask him about it and he was able to um, understand some of the ways and learn the language in that particular Mohican community. And that was the first uh, group of um, Native Christians that joined the Moravian Church came um, from Rauch's connection with that community. So the idea that you would want to sing in many different languages is very Moravian. 
Um, so we have records then in Bethlehem and in one worship service, they might've been singing in as many as 25 or 30 different languages. And this idea of the polyglot manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians all around the world was, was central to this idea. You also mentioned that uh, in addition to all the other ways that that singing uh, was a part of their culture, that they encouraged young uh, single adults to to play and in addition to playing cards, play with music. How, how did that how did that work? Well, just like any community, especially religious communities, you have to find something for young people to do to interest them. And um, so song was supposed to be a fun way of also socializing in a way that was also religiously and socially acceptable. Um, so they could have, young people could have played games that were improvisational um, around song. And, um, you know, this was just an important way of keeping people occupied and also emphasizing the centrality of song and music in daily life, that it is part of your the entirety of your life. It's not something that is set apart from it. How did non-Moravians react to Moravian music? So there were a lot of travelers who came through um, Bethlehem and other Moravian communities in eastern Pennsylvania in the mid-18th century. Um, the Marquis de Chasselux um, and Benjamin Franklin, for instance, visited uh, Bethlehem. And many travelers wrote about the beauty of Moravian singing. These records tend to be pretty consistent. Um, you know, even though people were visiting in different years and visiting different communities, that there was a sense of a group harmony and an expression of deep feeling or deep religious commitment that came through in the singing of the Moravians. And many people wrote that they were moved to tears. And that seems to be a pretty consistent reaction of travelers. It was something very deeply moving about listening to a group of Moravians singing. Did the Moravians ever hold concerts for outsiders, or was it mostly just an internal internal uh, thing for them? Mostly it was internal. Um, it was meant for the community. So people played chamber music. Um, the Moravians had you know, some of the first um, chamber works composed um, in early America here on this side of the Atlantic, and they also imported um, the most current musical manuscripts and instruments from Europe, um, again, due to this you know, extensive trade network via ship across the Atlantic. Um, those concerts tended to be for Moravians themselves, but visitors were sometimes allowed to participate and to actually listen to those concerts. Did Moravian musical forms influence the broader musical world? Um, that's a good question, because in terms of um, chamber music, uh, the Moravians were not doing things that were vastly different from those same types of compositions that were happening in Europe at the time, string quartets, uh, symphonies, uh, these types of things tended to be favored cantatas uh, for Moravian communities. But I would say in terms of, of singing hymns, that did have some influence in a broader sense. For instance, um, the Wesleys, uh, who founded the Methodist Church, they knew Zinzendorf, um, they, had, uh, they knew other Moravians, they had heard them singing, and they were some of the people that wrote about in the mid-18th century about the beauty and the communal harmony that they heard, and this influenced the tradition of, of hymn singing in the Methodist Church. 
Now let's talk a little bit about uh, some more about the native Moravians. How did they fit into the community? Were, were, did they have their separate community or were they actually allowed to live within uh, the Bethlehem community? So it depended on the person and on the situation. So some native Moravians lived right in the Bethlehem community. Um, there were a number of single sisters, for instance, who lived in the single sisters choir. There were single brothers who lived in the single brothers choir um, who were uh, native American. But um, some Native American congregants chose to live in a separate community near to Bethlehem. So in the 1740s, there was a community um, along the Lehigh River. There's, there's a, lar a steep embankment um, in Bethlehem, kind of uh, near the center of the town. And down at the bottom of that embankment along the river, there was a community called Friedenshutten. Um, there was a smallpox epidemic in Bethlehem in 1746, and um, that community then relocated to where present-day Lehighton is located, north along the Lehigh River, and that community was called Gnadenhutten, and that community was actually attacked um, in the early 1750s and destroyed and that the uh, native Christian community and some of the German missionaries who served there relocated back to the Bethlehem area where they founded a town called Nain. Now, um, archeologists and scholars have been searching for the location of Nain. And fortunately there has been some very good archeological work in the past 15 years. And the site of that appears to have been located in a small wooded area that is actually behind a Lowe's parking lot in present-day Bethlehem. It's it's along the Monocacy Creek. And if you look on the book's website, you can actually um, see the location of that settlement marked, at least according to current archaeological data, that's where it was located. How did the Native Moravians combine their own uh, Native cultural singing with the Moravian style of singing? Yeah, so this is a really good question because um, Archival records created um, by European communities tended to not emphasize issues, for instance, of performance practice or how Native Christians might have brought their own previous musical traditions to bear upon um, singing Christian hymns, which, of course, were more German in origin. And that's been one of the challenges of this project and one of the things that I continue to work on as a researcher is looking beyond or I guess around these records to find the the musical traditions and ideas about singing that would have um, come from Native Christians that they brought with them in, into their practice of Christian faith that just have been silenced or just not recorded uh, in the uh, archival records of the Moravian Church. So one of the challenges of working with the Mohican hymns, for instance, has been how to sing them in the present day. We know a lot about how European Moravians thought hymns should be sung. They should be sung very softly, very quietly, very reverently. They were a form of prayer. Um, they should always be done by a group. But we don't know a lot about how Mohican Christians might have also brought pre-existing ideas about how to perform sacred song so one of the projects I've been working on, which is an outgrowth of the uh, book project, is to actually resound these hymns in three different ways with the help of a descendant Mohican community in Wisconsin 
on the Stockbridge community in Bowler, Wisconsin. And the idea is to engage the many different stakeholders in the history of these hymns with resounding them in the present day in ways that are meaningful to them. So we have actually sung the same hymns that are on the book's website with a church community uh, in the Stockbridge community, the Lutheran Church of the Wilderness, and um, Bill Miller, who is a Mohican singer-songwriter from that community who lives in Nashville today. Um, he's a three-time Grammy Award-winning um, singer-songwriter, has actually composed his own new music, sort of getting rid of the German chorale tunes that might have set those Mohican texts and composed his own new music to those texts. So we've, we've done them in three different ways. The sort of way we think Moravians at least European Moravians might have sung them based on archival records. And then with um, a church community, um, Mohican descendant church community, and then also with Bill Miller providing his own unique spiritual voice uh, to these hymn texts in the present day. Now, one of the native uh, Moravians that you mentioned in the book was Joshua. You mentioned that he was a cooper and a carpenter, and uh, he was one of the more gifted musicians. Who was he? Yeah, so Joshua um, and Joshua's father um, were some of the very first um, converts to Moravian Christianity, and they were both father and son were important uh, spiritual elders within the Moravian communities. They came um, from um, their home community in New York, and they moved to the area around Bethlehem. Um, Joshua Jr. was born. There, they lived in Gnadenhutten, um, they lived in Nain and Friedenshutten, some of these um, communities that I mentioned a little while ago. And eventually um, they migrated into Ohio with the entirety of um, the Moravian native congregation in the 1770s. And Joshua Sr. passed away in Ohio. Um, Joshua Jr. actually um, passed away in Indiana, where there was a Moravian mission community along the White River near Anderson. How did the Seven Years' War influence the relationship between the Native Moravians and the European Moravians? It was devastating to the whole idea of how a Moravian um, Christian community could work. So the whole idea, as I said, um, going back to the idea of polyglot harmony and that the Holy Spirit would manifest in different places and cultural traditions in a specific uh, way that that was the whole premise of you know these communities that they could be multicultural they could be multi-ethnic they could involve different expressions of christianity and unfortunately even though the moravians and i think um, native moravians and european moravians believed strongly in these ideals it, it was not supportable when the communities around them, they were really Im immersed in this British Atlantic colonial world where those values were becoming increasingly rare and not supported. And of course, during times of war, there's there's going to be acts of violence that uh, basically people increasingly came to see their differences as real differences and actually insurmountable. And one of the legacies of the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution was um, the growing apart of people who lived in these communities so that um, race and ethnicity came to be seen as far more important than a shared or common spirituality or Christian faith. 
Did, did the native Moravians feel abandoned by the European Moravians? I think to some extent they did. So in, in the book's fourth chapter, I talk about um, the exodus from the community of Nain to Philadelphia. So um, in the wake of the massacre by the Paxton boys um, of Susquehannocks at Conestoga Manor, um, and also increasingly ho hostility of other European settlers in the area around Bethlehem and Nain, the, na the whole native congregation was relocated to Philadelphia to the center of the Pennsylvania colonial government for their protection. Um, they were located on what was called at the time Province Island, um, which was actually an island in the Delaware River, and it was a former place where people were isolated who had various um, contagious diseases. It was a pestilence um, isolation area. And the Moravians were there for about a year. There was several attempts to move them into the uh, New York or New Jersey, but none of the other um, colonies would accept them. Um, so they were there under the uh, protection of the Pennsylvania colonial government and Benjamin Franklin was involved um, in that as well. There was also some a danger to them that the Paxton boys might possibly attack Philadelphia um, and um, there was a lot of hostility between different European settlers in eastern Pennsylvania and the government um, for sheltering these native Christians. Now these native Moravians seem to have been in a, a difficult position. They had left their communities and embraced Christianity but now they were being uh, not able to find a home within within the Christian communities of, of the Europeans that they were around. Uh, do we have a record of how that affected them? Yes, so there there are diary records that are very detailed about their stay in Philadelphia and then also their journey northward from there to found a new town far away from European settlement at that time along the north branch of the Susquehanna um, River at um, uh, near Wyoming. And um, these records are really painful to read. I do try to um, put some of them into the book and on the website into some of the maps there. Um, you know, people did really feel abandoned, um, but there was also a lot of hope that they could continue to push through this time and come back, I guess, to a sense of community where uh, Native Americans and Europeans could live together in a sense of Christian harmony. Um, but that was becoming a sort of increasingly distant um, possibility. And eventually that community along the northern branch of the Susquehanna had to be uh, dissolved. And that's when the whole congregation moved into Ohio. Now the Moravians seem to have been uh, very writerly. They, they wrote diaries in addition to the hymns that we talked about. Uh, why was that such an important part of their culture? I think it's very it's very German, um, <laughs> just from my um, you know knowledge of German history and uh, working as a historian of, of uh, German culture, the idea that you are going to keep very detailed records and also preserve those over time um, is a particularly German uh, pursuit. So if you look in the archives in the community in Harnhut, for instance, in Germany. Um, even tiny little scraps of paper that people wrote ideas or thoughts on or a little sketch of a hymn idea or a poetic meter were actually kept. 
And there has been a tradition of archivists in the Moravian church that have been working with these material records since the 18th century and preserving them. Now you had the chance to visit Heronhut in your research and you found uh, documents from your ancestors. What was it like to hold those in your hands and read them? It was incredible. Um, for instance, I found a, a will of Johann Jakob Eierly Sr. and the wax seal was still on this. Um, and I imagine that he would have actually, you know, created that seal and pressed, um, you know, made the impression in the wax to think that um, someone who is so far removed, you know, from my own circumstance in the present day, but with whom I am related, had actually held this same piece of paper was, was pretty remarkable. Now, as the Bethlehem community changed after the Seven Years' War, how did that change their singing? Yeah, so one of the ways that we can use uh, music to understand, you know, general history in Pennsylvania is to see how singing practices respond or um, are shaped by what is going on in the world around Moravian communities. So with the removal of the native Moravian commun community away from Bethlehem and also increasing European settlement in that area, you know, during the last part of the 18th century, the Moravian practice of improvisational singing really died out. It persisted a bit longer in Europe, um, but after the 1760s, um, Bethlehem's shifted from a communal economy where everyone lived, as I said, in these communal houses and also committed their labor to the common good uh, to a system where people began to live in single family homes and to purchase land or at least rent it from the church in Bethlehem. And that really shifted the pattern of how people went about their day and the contact that they had with each other. You can only improvise songs in this complex way if you're doing it all the time and you are really committed to this practice. If you are living together in single family units and you know only coming together for worship services occasionally, um, those intensive practices of music will die out. And that's exactly what happened um, in Bethlehem. Are there any surviving Moravian communities in the United States today? Yes, there, there are quite a few. Uh, so just in um, eastern Pennsylvania, some of the more notable ones are, of course, Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth, Lidditz, uh, Emmaus. There are smaller communities um, spread around the um, area of the Lehigh River. And North Carolina is another big area of Moravian settlement. So a group from Bethlehem went southward uh, into North Carolina and founded a town called Salem. And then um, some related communities sprang up around that, like Bethabara. And eventually Salem merged with the town of Winston, and today is known as Winston-Salem. Uh, but if you go there today, there's wonderful Moravian museums and other um, you know, buildings and history that you can go and experience, just as there is in, in Bethlehem, actually, in Nazareth, with the Moravian Historical Society and um, the Historic Bethlehem Partnership. There are about 12 different museums in Bethlehem today that you can go to experience Moravian history. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Sarah Justina Ierly. She is the author of the book Moravian Soundscapes, A Sonic History of the Moravian Missions in Early Pennsylvania. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books. 
a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.